Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the book of Deuteronomy, reading from the 18th chapter, just the 15th verse. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. May the Lord bless us with understanding this evening and illuminate our minds to what this means. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we would know you better tonight. That's our goal, is to see you in all your glory, to see you for who you are, to see that you and you alone, there's no one else who can fill this position, who can be the prophet that Moses is talking about. I just pray that that will become so clear that you'll give me the words to make a reasoned defense of of the statement that I'm going to make, and we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you know that we're here on Christmas Eve to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the coming of the Christ child, and for Christians, Christmas is hugely significant because it's when Jesus, when God entered space and time, when he took on the attributes of a human and walked amongst us and accomplished such amazing things. When we talk about the importance, though, of this night, it's not just the fact that Jesus was born this night. That's what we're celebrating. But it's his entire life. It's all that he did. It's the, the perfect life that he lived. The atonement that he achieved for us on the cross when he died to pay for sins. And the resurrection to prove that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And the ascension where he is coronated king of kings and lord of lords. All of that is the most significant part of human history as far as, far as Christians are concerned. But unfortunately, not everyone believes that. In fact, 2,000 years ago is when Jesus came, almost exactly. And, and for all 2,000 years, there have been people who have believed that he is exactly who he said he was. And he is who the Bible says he is. And there are those who don't believe. And, and especially at this time of year, my heart breaks for those who don't have that assurance of that belief. And especially my Jewish friends. And, and the, I think the reason is... It's because if there's any people group on the face of the planet who ought to believe in Jesus, who ought to see him for who he is, it's them. Because they were God's chosen people. They had the oracles of God. I mean, you may be here tonight because it's a tradition and you go to church, you know, Easter and Christmas. That's what you're supposed to do in those days. And, 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 and you believe a little bit, but you don't really believe. But the Jews knew the Bible inside and out. And so if anyone should have known that there's only one person in all of human history who could actually fill what Moses is saying here in this passage, that God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from among your, from you, your, your brother. Well, if anyone should know that, it should have been the Jews. But what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to make a reasoned argument, if you will, a, a reasoned argument that Jesus is exactly who Moses is talking about here. And actually, there cannot be any other person who could actually fit that criteria. And, and I want to do it from the scriptures, primarily the Old Testament. I want to take a look at, at, at the kind of prophet that Moses was. 
And, and ask ourselves exactly what does it mean to be a prophet like Moses? And is there anyone that could possibly be that, that prophet? And, and just to analyze a little bit. And I'm not going to go into any depth. I know it's Christmas Eve and you don't want to get too technical or in any depth. But I'm just going to look at three criteria. There's a lot more. But I'm just going to look at three different ways that, that we, I, I can make my point. Now I'm going to use the Bible as my primary source. And I know that I'm going to lose some of you right there because I know that not everybody believes that the Bible is the infallible, the inerrant word of God as we do. And and if I make a point and I base it upon what the Bible has to say, then some people are going to say, well, it's not a valid point because that's just a book full of Hebrew myths. Well, if that's you and that's the way you feel about the Bible, I want to ask you a question. Why do you feel that way? What evidence do you have? Is, is it because you have delved into the Bible so carefully and you've looked at all of what it has to say and you've made an intelligent decision that it is simply Hebrew myths or are you just saying that because you really don't want to be bothered by it? Well, let me, let, let me challenge you here just one little bit before we get into this. And that is that the Bible is accepted by even skeptical scholars as being one of the best, um, most reliable historical documents that we have. When you begin to go back into ancient times and look at the various historical documents upon which we base all our history... You'll find that thousands of years sometimes pass between the time it was written and the, and the most recent copy. There is no ancient historical document that is better attested, that has more copies, that has been more carefully looked at, more carefully analyzed than has the Bible. It is a reliable historical document. So I ask you, why don't you believe it? If it is, if it is that reliable and, and if it is that well attested, how come you discount it? Well, Every time I have that conversation with anybody, the first thing they say is, well, because it has miracles in it. It talks about supernatural things that can't happen. Do you really believe that God created the world in six days? I mean, come on. Do you believe someone actually walked on water? Do you believe he could raise somebody from the dead? Do you actually believe that the Red Sea parted and a million and a half people walked through on dry land? Well, let me ask you, I guess, from a different position. Why, why don't you believe that? What evidence do you have, oh, you who require evidence for everything that you believe and are not going to believe anything that you don't have evidence for, what evidence do you have that God could not do any of those things? So you've accepted the fact that the Bible is a Bible of myths without actually looking into it and determining that what actual evidence do you have that miracles are impossible? And if the Bible is a reliable historical document that carries with it the description of miracles, why would you not at least give it the consideration? And by the way, if you don't believe in a God who is capable of parting the Red Sea, then you really don't believe in God. And if you don't believe in God, then there's nothing I can say tonight that's going to make any difference to you. But if you do believe in God, at least believe in the real God. Believe in a big God. Believe in a God that made the universe in, in, in the very power of his will. And that's the God who revealed himself in this book. And so therefore I'm going to make my arguments based on what this book has to say. Now we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses in that book says that God 
told him that he was going to raise up a prophet like him from amongst his people. Now, Deuteronomy is a book, and we don't talk about Deuteronomy that much, but Deuteronomy is a book that actually means the second giving of the law or the recounting or the revisiting of the law. Basically, what the book of Deuteronomy is, is Moses recounting the Exodus years, the the laws of God, the prophecies of God, the events that occurred, but he's telling it in his own words. And if you were to take the book of Deuteronomy and you were to boil it down into one statement, Deuteronomy is a book that says simply that Yahweh is God and you are not. And that God is God, and because God is God, when he tells you something, when he says to do something, that you should do it. In other words, the key to Deuteronomy can be found in Deuteronomy 6, in what the Jews call the Shema. And Orthodox and faithful Jews still recite it every single day. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the very core of what Deuteronomy has to tell. And if God is that God, that all-powerful God, that one God, then you owe him your allegiance, you owe him obedience, and you owe him worship. And that's what Moses goes on to say after he says that. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, what God tells you is important, and the prudent person is going to listen to those words. Now, what did Moses just say that's so important? He said that there will come a day that God will raise up a prophet like him, And that when God raises that prophet like him, you had best listen to him. So I'm going to make an argument that the prophet that Moses was talking about is none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm going to make the argument that it can't be anybody else in history. And of course, we're going to take a look at the Hebrew history. So let me let me just kind of form a baseline. First of all. We're talking about a person who postdates Moses. It's somebody who has to come after Moses. Because after all, Moses says, the Lord our God will raise up someone, a prophet uh, among you. And, and then later on at the end of Deuteronomy, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, if you know that book, it's sort of an addendum written by other people to talk about Moses and the Deuteronomy. And this is what it says in that book. It says there, I mean, in that chapter, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So we know that whatever, whoever he's talking about has to post date that statement because up until the point of that, that statement, which is after Moses died, there had never been another prophet like Moses. So anyone who came before, we eliminate. And, and the second major sort of narrowing of our discussion is what Moses also says. He says that the Lord your God will rise, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And when he says from among you, from your brothers, what he's talking about is the Hebrews. 
So that means that this prophet is going to be a Hebrew. So we don't need to go in and look at Egyptian history or Babylonian history or Syrian history or Greek history or Rome history or any other nation's history. Because we know that the particular prophet that Moses is talking about, the one who will come that will be like him is going to be a Hebrew. And since the history of the Hebrew race is in the Bible, that's where we're going to go. And we're going to use the scripture to make A reasoned argument. Now it would only make sense. That when we're looking for a prophet like Moses. That we would begin to look at Moses and ask. Okay so what are the things that defined him. That would be a prophet like Moses. Well I think that. The, the, the birth narrative of, no, of Moses is so important that you, you really have to look at that. Because the birth narrative, the way he was born and what happened after he was born shaped his life and guided him and, and made him the kind of man that he was. So if you're going to look for a prophet like Moses, you're going to have to look for a prophet who has a birth narrative that is similar to Moses. And I know that most of you know this, but let me just remind you. Moses grew up in Egypt. The reason he was in Egypt was because 400 years before, his family, then only about 70 people, moved to Egypt to escape a famine because Joseph had become favored by the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gave him a really nice place to live, the land of Goshen. And for a while, everything was great. They they were living there in Goshen, and they're profiting, and they're expanding. And after a couple of generations, though, a Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's more of a title than it is a name, a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph rose to power. And so he looked at all these, it's not funny, he looked at all these Hebrews in Goshen and says, wow, a ready-made workforce. And so he enslaved them. And for hundreds of years... He worked them and, 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 and held them in bondage. And so by the time of, of, of Moses, this, this had been a way of life that they were slaves in, in Egypt. But then something started happening. Even though that they were very greatly oppressed, they began to just expand and Grow and their numbers increased to the point where the Egyptians started getting nervous. There's too many of them. Uh, and, and, and if an enemy came along and they sided with the enemy, they could actually turn against us. So what are we going to do? That's when the Pharaoh at that time made a wicked command. Really terrible. He says, okay, the way that we're going to do this is we're going to kill every Hebrew male child. Throw them in the Nile. Feed them to the, to the crocodiles. And so the, the edict went around and every single male child ha- had to be killed. So Moses was born under a death sentence. Okay. He had already been passed. He was, he was to be murdered or to kill as soon as he was born. Well, you know the story. His mother put him in an ark and floated him down the river and it just so happened, you know, just so happened to land at Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's daughter fell in love with him and raised him in the palace right under Pharaoh's nose. Okay. Because that was, What was important for Moses. So if you're going to find a prophet like Moses. You need to find a prophet with a birth narrative similar to that. So look through scripture. Look through every page of it. And look for a prophet who had that kind of birth narrative. Well most of them you don't even know how they were born. In fact there's only two prophets that come to mind. That we have any idea about their birth narrative. One is Samuel. And the other is John the Baptist, even though he's in the New Testament, he's an Old Testament prophet. 
Now, we know about the birth narrative of both of them, but neither one of them were born under the death sentence, where as soon as they were born, they're to be murdered. So they don't fit the bill. In fact, if you begin to trace through all of Scripture, all of Hebrew history, there's only one person who actually was a great prophet who was born under a threat of death, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the reason that they were in Bethlehem is because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, and he went to Bethlehem to be taxed during the census. So that is where Jesus was was born. Now, it didn't happen on the night that he was born, although every nativity scene that you see has got the wise men there too. They didn't show up for quite some time. But anyway, when they came, they, they, they came through Jerusalem and they went to Herod the king, Herod the Great, and said, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. And Herod said, great, here I am. And he said, no, not you. We're looking for the baby that was just born that's the king of the Jews. Well, Herod was a paranoid um, king. And so the way he kept powers to kill any rival that he had. So Herod did something just as wicked as the Pharaoh did. He said to his, to his soldiers, go to Bethlehem and kill every male Hebrew child two years old and under. So Jesus found himself under the exact same kind of a death threat that Moses did. He's the only one in the history that did that. And by the way, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem fulfills another prophecy of old. The fact that he left Bethlehem because an angel warned Joseph and went to Egypt to wait out Herod the Great was another prophecy. Out of Egypt I will will call my son. But just look at the closeness between Moses and Jesus in the way that they were born. Both of them were under a death threat when they were born. Both of them were miraculously saved from that. Both of them went to Egypt in some way to be, to be taken care of by God until he was ready to use them. And then both of them were called out of Egypt to deliver God's people in Canaan. So, I mean, there's no one else that fits that bill. So basically, if you're being open-minded about this, I've proved my point. We can all go home. But there's always one guy, a guy back in the back that said, no, wait a minute. That, that, that's okay for a baby, but that's not a man. Baby doesn't make the man. So as far as a man, is there anything that Jesus did that would separate him from the other prophets that would mean he's the prophet that Moses is talking about. Well, something I didn't tell you earlier, I kind of skipped over it because I'm watching the time, is that I'm I'm kind of following in the footsteps of two of the greatest preachers who have ever been on this planet. One one was Peter the Apostle, and the other was Stephen the Martyr. And these are, are both great preachers, and they both defended that Jesus was the prophet that Moses was talking about. In fact, both of them, as they stood before the Sanhedrin, making the argument that Jesus was the prophet, they both used this passage exactly here. Well, Stephen goes on and he says this. He says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So therefore, if we are going to find a prophet like Moses, we're going to have to find a prophet who was mighty in his words and his deeds. 
Well, I think all prophets are actually mighty in their words. I don't think we can use that as a criteria because actually all prophets are mighty because when they speak, they say, thus saith the Lord. So they're mighty because the words that they speak are indeed God's words. Now, that said, I mean, Moses was kind of ahead of everybody because he's the one God gave the the law to. And Jesus, of course, is the Logos, the law of God, the very wisdom and word of God in human flesh. So they went far beyond as far as the word. But let's just kind of focus on the deeds. If if we're going to find a, 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 a prophet like Moses, we're going to have to find a prophet who worked amazing miracles. Because... There is no one in ancient history who worked the kind of miracles that Moses did. I mean, from the very beginning, when God called him and sent him to Egypt, he appeared to him in a burning bush. And the bush is burning and it's on fire, but it's not burning up because God was in the bush, but he was not of the bush. And God sent Moses, a shepherd from Midian, to Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, and Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth. And you, this shepherd, you go up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, which Moses did. And Pharaoh said, no, I don't think I will. I'm holding on to them because they're building my cities. And God began to work the most amazing, powerful miracles through Moses. You all know this, the ten plagues. I mean, forget the fact that he throws down his staff and it turns into a snake. He puts his hand in and brings it out and it's, and it's leprous and he puts it back in and it's clean again. Those plagues of Egypt are amazing. The Nile River turned to blood. Flies and frogs and lice and boils and, and, and locusts who come and, and hail that falls from the, uh, the sky and burns when it hits the ground and darkness that covered the land for days. And finally, of course, the, 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 the worst of the plagues when the firstborn of all Egypt died and the firstborn in the land of Goshen did not because of the Passover. But that broke the resolve of Pharaoh, the mighty miracles that Moses is working. And so Moses led the people out of Egypt, but he led them to the side of the the Red Sea. And Pharaoh changed his mind and said, okay, chariots, you go wipe those people out. So they found him trapped against the Red Sea with hills on either side. I mean, they're rats trapped. I mean, all they do is go in and slaughter them. But just then, that's when God worked his mighty miracle. He sent a fire, a big column to stand between them. And then he parted the waters of the Red Sea. Somewhere around a million and a half people walked through that Red Sea as if it was on dry ground. And let me tell you something. I'm sorry. If you don't believe in a God who can part the water of a sea he made, then you do not believe in God. At least you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You've made something up in your mind that you like to believe in because that God can do anything. And part of the Red Sea was nothing to him. And so that great sign of redemption, they walk through the Red Sea. Those are amazing miracles. And, of course, he gets to the other side, manna from heaven, hitting rocks with a stick, and water comes pouring out, feeding a million and a half people every day, making sure they have water, all of that, the most amazing miracles. So if anyone is going to be a prophet like Moses, it's a pretty tall order because he, he, he worked miracles like no one else. So once again, let's go through scripture. Who, who, who was a miracle worker who was also a prophet of that caliber? Well, there's lots of miracles in the Old Testament. There's lots of things that God does, but most of them are one-offs. 
And, and there's no one that even comes close to Moses except maybe Elijah and Elisha. They work some mighty amazing miracles, raise people from the dead and things like that. But even so, they don't reach the caliber or the, or the range of a Moses. There, there really was not, throughout all the history of the Hebrews, there was not a single person who could work the kind of miracles that Moses could until we get to Jesus of Nazareth. An unassuming son of a carpenter from one of the backwater towns of Galilee. And he began to work miracles that were not only like Moses, but surpassed Moses. I mean, he healed so many people. Who can keep count of the number of people that Jesus healed? He healed every kind of disease and sickness. He healed infirmities. He healed leprosy. He cast out demons. He, he helped the disabled people who had been blind or lame their entire life. He would give them their eyes so they could see or they could walk. He walked on water. He showed his power over the elements of creation when he stood in a boat in the middle of a storm and rebuked the wind and the waves and they obeyed him. That's power, folks. And, 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 and we fed thousands of people on two occasions with just a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of fish. I mean, we're seeing the most amazing miracles, but of course, he raised several people from the dead, including Lazarus, who had been in the grave four days. Do you know what happens to a body when you're dead for four days? And he raised him up and made him whole again. Now, Jesus worked amazing miracles, but what he did that Moses could not do, and this is what elevates Jesus beyond any miracle worker in the Bible completely. Is Jesus had the power and authority to forgive sins. Sometimes instead of healing someone, he wouldn't say pick up your bed and walk. He would say your sins are forgiven. Moses couldn't do that. Moses could work mighty things that God would bring about. But he couldn't forgive anyone's sins because he's not God. And Jesus was God in the flesh. And so Jesus' miracles were above and beyond anything that Moses could do. So, so far, I've given you two points. The birth narrative and the mighty miracles that lead to one person. Only one person can fulfill that. And that is Jesus the Christ, the little child whose birthday we celebrate tonight. But that's not even the best one. That's not even the most convincing one. The reason that I know that there is no other person... In scripture who can fulfill this. Is because Moses was first and foremost. Well let me ask you. What was Moses known for more than anything else? What was his description? When you think of Moses. What did Moses do that was so vital? I mean it wasn't to walk around and hit rocks. And get water out of it and do miracles. Moses was a deliverer. Moses was called of God and sent to Egypt when God called him on Mount Zion in the burning bush. He said, I have heard the cries of my people Israel and I am sending you to Egypt as my deliverer. My people are in bondage. They are slaves to Pharaoh. And I am sending you there and giving you power so that you will deliver my people. 
Well, that's exactly what Moses did. After he worked all those miracles and the plagues, he delivered the people and led them out of Egypt. And once again, when Pharaoh came behind him and trapped him at the Red Sea and the waters were parted, he delivered them through the water to the other side. And just to show that God doesn't allow the evil that he destroys to follow you, he brought the water back down upon the Egyptians and the horse and rider were cast into the sea. Uh, that's that, that's that's deliverance. And, and whenever you deliver someone, you, the idea of deliverance carries with it the idea of something that binds you that you need to be delivered from. And, and it's something that you will be delivered to. And Moses delivered them from slavery, from bondage, through the, the, the 40 years in the desert, and all the way to the promised land, the land of rest. What other prophet do we have? In all of the, of the history that follows. What other prophet do we have who was a deliverer of God's people? Now, we have guys like David, who was a mighty warrior. We have Nehemiah and Ezra, who brought the people back and rebuilt the temple. But they didn't deliver anyone. The only person in the history of the Hebrews that was a deliverer is Jesus the Christ. And that's why God sent him from heaven to earth, is to deliver these people. And you say, wait a minute, who did he deliver? Weren't the zealots all about him delivering them out of the bondage of Rome and he didn't do that? Didn't they mock him when he was up on the cross and say, you saved others, you can't even save yourself? <laughs> he couldn't deliver himself on the cross. Who exactly did he deliver? Wait a minute, you're missing the whole point. You you realize that the deliverance that Moses brought on the people was out of bondage and a petty dictator and, and, and a life that was difficult. But he, he took them out of that. Jesus came to deliver us from an eternal damnation, an eternal punishment and the wrath of God because he delivered us from our sins. We're bondage. We're in bondage. We, we are slaves to our sins. And Jesus came because he knew the problem that existed ever since the fall. That you and I cannot possibly save ourselves. And so Jesus came so that we might be delivered. So that he would deliver us. The book of, my, of Matthew, this is what we read. Quoting Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them has a light shone. That's Jesus. That's the prophet that Moses is talking about. Jesus himself said in the fifth chapter of John, I am that prophet. Remember the angel who came to Joseph when he explained to Joseph about why Mary was pregnant and how she got pregnant? Remember what he said? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. God has sent you a deliverer to deliver you from that which will eternally send you into judgment. He's come to deliver you from the wrath of God. There could be no greater gift than the gift of Christmas to be delivered from that. Jesus himself, when he was in the the synagogue at Nazareth, said this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Once again, reading Isaiah because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
In other words, to be the prophet like Moses that Moses talked about. And when Jesus finished reading that, he looked around the synagogue and he said, this day, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am that prophet. So if you're open-minded and you put any stock in what scripture says, I think I have just proven without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the prophet that Moses was talking about. So let's go back and finish the verse. What did Moses say? If indeed Jesus is the prophet like Moses that God raised up, what does Moses say? It is to him you will listen. In other words, when Jesus speaks, you need to pay attention to what he says. You need to to live by his words. When he speaks, these are important words, not just words that are said. And, and, And Moses actually goes on and he puts it this way in the same passage. I will raise up for them, God speaking to Moses now. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him or what I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. What does that mean? When God looks at you and says, I will require it of you. What is he actually saying? Well, Peter gets a little bit more succinct about this in the book of Acts when he repeats this. He said, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. Horrible, horrible judgment, penalty to pay. We're not paying attention to what Jesus says. So with that said, what actually did Jesus say? If, if he's the prophet like Moses, and we celebrate his birthday, and we celebrate his coming, and you know we, we talk about him, but what, is he, what did he say that is so important that we listen to? Well, to start out with, they asked Jesus what the most important commandment of all the other commandments are. What is the one that will condemn us the most if we don't do it? You know what Jesus said? He quoted the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. This is the most important commandment. This is the commandment by which you will be judged. You know what that means, doesn't it? You're condemned because none of you have loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength one minute today, much less the rest of your life. We are compounding guilt upon guilt and sin upon sin throughout the rest of our of our lives because we don't keep the number one commandment that Jesus gives us. Now, I'm not here to ruin your Christmas and to make you feel bad. I want you to understand what the good news is. The good news is that Jesus came to Deliver you. And the more that you understand the need for a savior. The more that you understand how glorious it is this night that we celebrate. The night that God sent a deliverer. To deliver us from ourselves. To deliver us from our sins. To deliver us from the wrath of God. Jesus came to deliver us. And that is the most glorious thing. But there's something that you need to know. Jesus also said there's no other way around this. This is not a mountain with many paths and all you have to do is believe and to kind of formulate your own way up. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. So what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I came to deliver you. And because I am the prophet that Moses talked about, you owe me your allegiance. You owe me your obedience. You owe me your life. Because I have come to deliver you. He told Nicodemus in the third chapter of John, Verily, verily, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, when Jesus said something that was really important, that's the way he prefaced it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you were born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And I came to take the sins that would condemn you, to pay for them on the cross, to wrap you in my righteousness. But what I demand from you is belief. What did Jesus say? Not that. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever doesn't believe in him is condemned already because he did not believe in the name of the only Son of God. My dear friends, the reason we celebrate Christmas is because we have been delivered by the very Son of God who gave his life and went to hell, suffered the, and figuratively went to hell, suffered the wrath of God on the cross for those who put their faith in him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's worth celebrating. That's worth praising the one who is a prophet like Moses. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the the truths that you give us in scripture. And we thank you so much for the fact that you're a logical guide. And I know that most of the world thinks we're a bunch of mindless fundies and we leave our hats and our, in our brains and our hats at the door when we come in, that we believe in fairy tales. But actually, we're not. It's not intelligent to, to believe that you're incapable of working miracles within the very universe that you created. That's not logical at all. And so, Lord, I thank you that you're logical, and I think that you give us such good evidence in your word. And I just pray that, that, that the words that have been spoken tonight and the reasoned argument that I have made will, will help some people understand that you are God and that they are not. And you call them into obedience, and you sent your son for their good as their deliverer. And we give him the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.